Well, thanks, Chuck, for the introduction. Good to be here with you guys this morning on our third Sunday of Advent. Our theme this morning is hope. I'm hoping that we can all leave this morning with an understanding of the difference between worldly hope and biblical hope. Also, a good understanding of what it was that the Old Testament saints were hoping for and how that relates to what we are hoping for. And ideally, also, a a sense of searching of our own hearts about where exactly our hope is. So, let's begin with a story. In 2001, March of 2001, a restaurant in Florida decided to have a sales contest. Now, this is, this is a real story. This actually happened. Uh, this restaurant belonged to a nationwide chain. Uh, I won't tell you the name of this, uh, this chain, but suffice to say, uh, it's a restaurant that is not known for the dignity with which it treats its female employees. Uh, and th- that's an important thing to remember because uh, the lack of dignity that they show their, uh, their female employees relates, uh, I think explains somewhat uh, how exactly uh, an event like this could have happened, uh, as you'll see in the story. So they gathered together, this restaurant gathered together all their waitresses. They said, during the month of March, we're going to be having a sales contest. We're going to see who can sell the most beer. We're going to track all your sales. And at the end of the month, Whoever has the most, the highest sales numbers is going to get a new Toyota. That's what they told their, their workers. Now, as you can imagine, uh, waitresses uh, at a restaurant um, are not, it's not exactly the most high-paying job. So this prospect of potentially winning a new car, well, you know, that would be significant for anyone, I think. But it was especially significant um, for, this is like a potentially life-altering um, prize for these women. I mean, it had a, 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 a potential to significantly alter the course of their next couple lives, the next couple years of their life. <clears throat> so this was a, a very motivating um, sales contest. The women worked hard all month, uh, and eventually at the end of the month, they gathered the waitresses back together uh, on April 1st. Um, they said, we're going to announce the winner. They announced the winner, um, and then they blindfolded her, and they led her out to the parking lot uh, to see her new Toyota. Now, you can imagine... What's going through her mind? She's worked all month. She's won. She's the top-selling beer salesman in her restaurant. And now she's going to go out and see with her own eyes this new Toyota. So you can imagine uh, a little bit of, of, of what she's experiencing when, she, when they took off the blindfold and she realized instead of a new car, they had given her a literal Toyota. A literal toy Yoda. I think uh, what she's feeling is kind of summed up in her <laughs> the look on her face there. Uh, now, I, I don't know what your reaction is. When I, the first time I heard this story, um, because I, I'm not like the most naturally empathetic person, my first reaction was I, I laughed. You know, it's kind of a, it's a decent pun, right? Toy Yoda. Um, but then almost immediately I realized this isn't just like a joke. This isn't, actually, this isn't just you know, some funny anecdote. This actually happened to a person. A real person <laughs> experienced this. And so the next thought that went into my mind was just in amazement. I could not believe that somebody thought that this was going to go well. I cannot imagine. What, what did the owners of this restaurant think the reaction was going to be of this waitress? Well, she could just be like, 
Oh, you, you guys got me. It's a good, that's a good prank. I'm going to get you back for that one. Oh, Toyota. I can't believe they thought that that was how it was going to go. And of course, very quickly on the heels of that, my, my third, the third reaction I had was just a sense of empathy, sympathy, anger on behalf of this waitress. I wanted there to be like something to be done. Surely they suffered for this, for this terrible thing that they did. And in fact, the, the sequel to the story is uh, she immediately quit. She took that blindfold off. She saw what she got. She quit that day, went home, hired a lawyer, and sued the, comp- sued the restaurant. And uh, after a year or so, um, she won an undisclosed settlement. But her lawyer did say um, that it was large enough that she could walk onto any Toyota lot in the country <laughs> and bring home whatever she wanted. So she did get, eventually, her Toyota. It required a little bit of legal action, but she got it. So that, that's kind of good news. Now, I, I imagine like your feelings, you're kind of with me in what you're feeling, right? You, you immediately felt like this outrage and anger, probably faster than me. You're probably more empathetic than me. You, you felt this, this anger on her behalf. And I think the reason that it does is because this, uh, what's going on in this story is the universal experience of hope. And watching someone's hopes being toyed with by arbitrary power. That is a universal experience, and it causes a universal reaction in us. Okay, what, what has happened here? There's like a, like a pathway of our hope, right? Something was offered to her, some good thing that she wanted, desired, that was going to bring a good benef- a benefit to her. This was presented to her. And then a pathway, a, a way to, to alter her behavior and change the way she acted so that she could get it, was presented to her. And she did that, right? The, a path was given to her to attain what she was looking for. And then at the last minute, instead of receiving the fulfillment of her hopes, just this thing was taken away from her. She was deep disappointed. And the hurt that she felt, we feel it too when we hear that story. So I I think from this story of of, of understanding how this woman's hopes were toyed with, we can can begin to develop a good sense of what exactly hope is. You know, that, that idea that hope is something that is presented to us which alters our behavior and produces a, a feeling as we go through it, which is then either fulfilled or we're disappointed in. That enables us to come up with a good definition of uh, hope as it normally tends to operate in the world. So my definition, the definition I came up with, I like defining things. I like the, the words that we use in a Christian world. I like to actually have a, a vigorous definition of what they mean. So the definition I came up with is that hope is the pleasant anticipation of some good future outcome. So we're all familiar with this feeling. In fact, Christmas, the reason, one of the reasons that this Advent Christmas season is so strongly associated in our minds with hope, I think out in the popular imagination as well, hope is a big theme of the Christmas season. Because obviously, what we're doing as we travel through Christmas season is we're looking forward to a day that's in the future in which we, were, we are going to get good things. Namely, presence. <laughs> I think there's like some sort of psychic memory from our childhood that like retains its power even as we move into adulthood. That the, the meaning of this, uh, <laughs> this season is that we're moving towards a day when we're going to receive things that we want. Now, obviously, as, 
as we mature, we add into that, of course, other good things that are associated with that day. The reunion of our families together, the participation in shared traditions, enjoyment of meal and fellowship and all that sort of thing. So I think eventually we expand it beyond just getting presents. But nonetheless, this, uh, this understanding of hope is readily uh, it's out there in the world. Like People understand that we're, we're moving towards some good thing on Christmas Day that we're hoping for. <clears throat> that's, a broad, that's, a, that's a broad kind of worldly definition of hope. And that sort of hope in which we are, we are looking ahead to some good outcome and we start to experience the good feelings associated with that outcome as we do. Is, uh, we all experience that. We're all hoping for different things that are coming in the future. But is this the same thing as the hope which the Bible talks about? When Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that there are three things that remain, faith, hope, and love, did he mean just a pleasant anticipation of some good future outcome? Is that what he means by hope? At least as is understood in the world. I want to uh, distinguish between what we experience in the world when we hope and what the Bible, how the Bible describes hope. There's a couple key differences, I think, that are very important. First of all, uh, in the world as we hope, hope is associated with a feeling that kind of rises or falls. Sometimes it's strong, sometimes it's weak. Sometimes we forget about it, sometimes we remember it, but it comes and goes. But in, in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says, that hope is an anchor for the soul. How can something that comes and goes, that's there sometimes and not there other times, how can that anchor our soul? In fact, the scriptures seem to refer to hope as something that produces emotions. It's a, it's a thing that stays there, not that comes and goes. The second way that biblical hope is different from worldly hope, the things that we hope for with our worldly hope they cease with this world. So Paul in 1, Corinthians, or 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, uh, I, do not want you to be, um, I, I do not want you to be uninformed about those that have died or those that have fallen asleep, he says. I do not want you to mourn like the rest of men who have no hope. Why do they have no hope when they approach death? Because worldly hope is summed up in things that are attained here in this world, in this life. Whereas biblical hope is fully encompassed by things that are still to come. Paul, Romans 8, hope that is seen is no hope at all. Biblical hope is entirely in the next world, the next life. Things that follow death. The third way that worldly hope is different from biblical hope. The strength of worldly hope increases and decreases based on how likely we understand the good outcome to be. Say that one more time. The strength of worldly hope increases and decreases based on how likely we understand the good outcome to be. So the thing that is offered to us the more likely it seems to us that we're going to get it, the greater our hope grows. As it seems to grow less likely, our hope diminishes. 
And as uh, it, it gets less and less likely, eventually there comes a point in which our hope entirely fails. And we give way to despair. Despair is the opposite of hope. Hope is the anticipation of some good outcome. Despair is the anticipation of some bad outcome. Unfulfillment. This is why the sort of hope that exists in the world is so tenuous. Why it breaks and fails and disappoints. By contrast, biblical hope is not based on calculations of probability. It is not based on how likely an event is. Biblical hope is secured by God. Now, I want to belabor this point just a little bit because I think it's very, very important. Okay, if I promise to you some good outcome, if I tell you I am going to do this good thing for you, your hope in it is going to rest on two things. First of all, how much do you trust me? How much do you believe in me? Do you think that I'm a man of my word who if I say something, I fully intend to do it? Or am I you know, just telling you what you want to hear? How much do you trust me? If you know me well and you trust me, you probably have a good, good sense that I'll probably try and do what I say. I, I usually try and do what I say. Weird little habit of mine, I know. Uh, so that's the first thing. How much do you trust me? The second thing is, do you perceive or do you understand that I actually have power to do what I say I'm going to do? Do I have the ability to fulfill what I've said? I may have all the good intentions in the world, but I, if I lack the power to bring about what I've promised, then your hope in me will probably fail. <clears throat> so those two things, my trustworthiness and my power or ability to accomplish what I've said. Now, all of worldly hope, all of worldly hope goes out in some way to the powers and abilities and trustworthiness of men whether it's our own trust in ourselves, trust in some system of men, trust in some human being, it all rests in the powers and the trustworthiness of people. Biblical hope, biblical hope, because it is secured by God, rests in the trustworthiness and in the power of God. God who has not, who will not ever lie. God whose power is so great that no man can frustrate his intentions. Who can say to God, stop? Who can stop him from doing what he intends to do? No one. This is the strength, the security of biblical hope. Resting as it does in the character and nature of God the one who is strong enough to do it. Therefore, true biblical hope is not unstable, constantly shifting in our emotional experience, prone to failure and despair. But instead, if properly understood and nurtured and developed in the soul, is a source of enduring joy in every situation that we can encounter. Because standing behind our hopes is the God who made everything and who controls everything. And what he has said, he surely will do. 
So then, that uh, is a summary of the differences between biblical hope and worldly hope. Worldly hope is a feeling, but biblical hope is like an anchor. Worldly hope deals with things that we can accomplish and fulfill in this life. Biblical hope has reference to the next life. Worldly hope rests in the power and trustworthiness of man, whereas biblical hope rests in the power and trustworthiness of God. So then, when we think about the real nature of hope in this Advent season, what is it exactly that the men who were awaiting the day of Jesus Christ, what is it that they were hoping for? Therefore, what should we hope for? These are the, the, if we're going to understand hope as we should, not just the nature of biblical hope, but the substance of it, what is actually hoped for, we need to understand three things. First of all, uh, what, what are we hoping for? Why are we hoping for it? And are we actually hoping for the same thing? Well, uh, so let's take a look at those things now. What, what are we hoping for? And to do that, I, I want to re- return to the, the text that we had this morning. Now, it was read during the worship, and then uh, the kids sa- actually sang our text, although you're, you're probably distracted by their cuteness. So I'll read it again, <laughs> uh, just to make sure that we, um, that we got it, okay? This is from Luke 1. It's actually in your bulletins. I think they're going to put it up here so you can follow along. In the sixth month, The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Of his kingdom there will be no end. So here's Mary. The angel comes to her and gives her something to hope for. He says, conceived in you is going to bring forth, you are going to bring forth the one who has been promised since the beginning of time. Now, what is it that she is instructed here to hope for through the son that she is going to bear? First of all, this son that she's going to bear is going to be called the son of the most high. Meaning that this son that is going to come from her is the sent one from God. This is the one that has been promised from generation to generation. Now, since the beginning of time, since Adam and Eve first sinned in the garden, a man had been promised. An offspring of woman has said would come. He said that, that God said to Adam and Eve in the garden, he said, from the offspring of the woman, I will bring forth one who will crush the head of the serpent. That is the ancient promise. It was repeated again to Noah, repeated again to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. It was repeated again from Sinai by Moses to the entire people of God. It was repeated to David and the kings. And then finally it was repeated to the prophets and they spoke it again and again in the book of Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel. The coming of the man sent from God who would be son of the Most High. 
Second thing that she's instructed to hope for is that this son would inherit the throne of his father, David. Now, David, of course, was the idealized king from Israel's history. Uh, he was not like a perfect king. As you, as you know, if you read about his life, he, he made many mistakes. But he was the best king that they had. And he was, uh, his, role, his, his function as, in his role was kind of idealized in their history. And in fact, David, when he reigned, God made a promise to him that he was going to bring forth from him a son who would surpass him, a son who would have a throne that would last forever. And in Mary's day, there had not yet come a descendant of David who had inherited a throne that would last forever. This was an unfulfilled promise. And now the angel says to Mary, your son is the one. He will be king. He will reign in the throne of David. And the third thing that is communicated to her is that this would not be a king alone, but a king with a kingdom that the Son of the Most High was going to reign over all of of Jacob's house, that the church of God, all his people, would be gathered together into this kingdom. That is the hope of the generations of Israel. That is the hope that Mary is communicated to, which she has hoped for, and which in the birth of her son, we see fulfilled. Now, I, I think that uh, it's, it's important to note, as we move into wh- why were they hoping for this, it's important to remember that uh, the kingdom that they were anticipating, we tend to, in retrospect, spiritualize that kingdom because we know that Jesus did not displace Caesar Augustus, create armies, and conquer the whole earth. But I think that's what they were expecting. They were literally expecting that Jesus would be a political king, that he would be the head of a new political system, which all of God's people in his kingdom would be members of, that they would live in this idealized kingdom of justice and righteousness in which there was full and total human flourishing. All the kings that they knew, all the kingdoms that they had been a part of, had been broken by sin. The political systems of the world were broken because they were created by sinful men. So they were hoping for a new type of king, a new type of system, a kingdom that would reign, in which they would be members. This would be a kingdom of justice. This is why when Jesus, in one of his first public appearances, he he goes into the synagogue sits in the synagogue, and he says, hand me the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And they hand him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and he opens it up to Isaiah 61. It wasn't called Isaiah 61 yet, but <laughs> opens it up to what we know as Isaiah 61, and he read aloud, Jesus said this. Can you imagine being there where Jesus is reading? He says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Not just the spiritually poor, but literally the poor. The people that were poor. This new kingdom be a kingdom without poverty. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the, day, uh, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And he said, today this prophecy has been fulfilled. The king has come. It was a kingdom of justice, of righteousness. 
and is a kingdom that has not yet come. We are Christians. We are followers of Jesus. We are members of his kingdom. Yet we do not yet live in a kingdom in which justice reigns, in which sin has been broken, in which sickness is gone, in which death has been eliminated. It has not yet come. Now, why not? I think they were expecting it. Why not? Why couldn't it come yet? Because even, even the perfect political system established by a perfect king, if the members of it were sinful and the world in which they lived was broken by sin, it would not endure. The kingdom of God could not come until the world itself was remade. Until we ourselves, our very bodies, unless they are born again, unless they are remade, we are not fit to live in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so though he came, though he died, and though he raised from the dead and ascended into heaven, this kingdom will not come until he returns. So, uh, oh, the other other reason why uh, the kingdom has not yet come, the other reason is because Jesus said that in this kingdom, he was going to gather members from every nation on earth. This was unexpected to the Jews that were waiting in his day. They did not know that it was his intention that his kingdom would have from it people from every corner of the earth. And in fact, to this day, there still exists nations and peoples in which there are no worshipers of Jesus. Nations and peoples that have no members in his kingdom. So the work is not yet done. Until that, until that happens, until the gospel has gone out, and until every nation is gathered in, his kingdom will not return. The king will not return. So that leads us to the third question. Are we hoping for the same thing that they hoped for? Why do we celebrate Advent? It's not just so that we can have like a cool Christmas tree up here and nice decorations. And, and though this may sound a little bit unexpected or even heretical, it is not just, we don't just celebrate Christmas so that we can remember the day that Jesus was born. That is not, that is too small a thing for Advent. Because the birth of Jesus was not the end, but the beginning. It was the beginning of a process that has not yet reached its fulfillment. As they awaited the beginning of it, we await its end, the day when Jesus Christ will return on the clouds. The world will be remade. We ourselves will be transformed. And the kingdom of God will reign in which there is no pain, no sorrow, no suffering, no death, no sickness, no injustice, no unrighteousness. Nothing the worship of the God who reigns. So do we wait for the same thing as them? Are we waiting? Yes, we are. As they awaited the beginning, we await its fulfillment at the end. Now, uh, let me ask you one one more question. And this is a a question. I, I know that we are waiting, as the church of God in general, we are waiting together for that thing, that day. But I I want you to ask yourself a question. I want to ask myself this question too. 
am I hoping for the same thing as them? Is my hope, that which moves the emotions of my heart, that which produces joy in me, is it the same thing as the saints of old? One of the words in the New Testament that is most strongly connected to hope is suffering. Several occasions in which the writers of the Old Testament connect hope and suffering together, most particularly in Romans 5, in which Paul says, And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. Friends, suffering is the end of worldly hope. Suffering destroys worldly hope. Worldly hope is frustrated when we suffer. Whether it be a a suffering of the body, a suffering of some hope that we have for the future, the suffering of someone that we love, suffering brings to end the hopes that we have for a pleasant, pleasurable, easy, and fulfilled life here on earth. Therefore, the hope that Paul refers to here can be none other than the biblical hope in the things that are to come. And suffering does not kill that hope. It produces it. It strengthens it. It refines it. Because as all of our worldly hopes are stripped away, as the things that we tend to look for satisfaction in this life are taken from us, we are left with only one thing. Which, praise be to God, is the one thing that can fulfill us. The one thing that will not end. The one thing that is eternal. The glorious kingdom of Jesus Christ, which is coming. Am I hoping for that? Are my hopes set on things that I can touch? Things that I could get in this life and which will fail and end? That is the question to ponder as as they waited, as we enter into this Advent season, consider the men and women of the past that waited for his coming. And as we now await for his return, may the hopes of our hearts truly be set in a place where no one can take it away.